Actually, how about we'll get you guys to fall. You see the, in the bench, there's a Bible in front of you? Okay. How, Judah, maybe you can help me with this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and then tell me what page number it is. Can you do that for me? Or whoever can do that first. 1 Corinthians 15 and just tell me what page number it is. 1 Corinthians 15. 933? Okay, 933. So, yeah, I encourage you to use um, the Bench Bible and get, you know, it's, if you haven't used the Bible before, this is a great one. This is a great Sunday to use it because we're going to mainly stay in 1 Corinthians 15. So you see the big number 15 and then lots of small numbers afterwards, 1, 2, and 3, and all the way up to 58. And uh, so we're going to go through 1 Corinthians 15. And it'd be great to follow along in the Bible. I encourage you to check my work. Fact check what I'm teaching. Uh, it's not because I'm trying to trick you, but I want you to uh, be in the habit of checking things by the Bible. Right? Especially, <laughs> I get, hey, I got an applause for that. That's great. The reason being is that um, you don't come to church to hear my opinion. Really, you don't. You come to church to hear the Word of God. And if I'm straying from the, what the Word of God is saying, well, you want to know that, don't you? I would want you to know that. I, I don't try to stray from the Word of God. I try to stay on it and as much as I can uh, to help you to see that as well. Um, this morning, I've got three little choo-choo trains up here. Well, I guess they're different cars on the choo-choo train. Let me just explain this, the concept I'm trying to show this week. I'm trying to show you that I guess you could call this the resurrection train, the resurrection train. We're in a series right now, and we're talking about heaven. And last week, I had three big pots up here, and one was a pot that said earth on it, one said heaven on it, and the other one said new heaven and new earth, and they were getting bigger. And I said, the first one, the recipe has been spoiled. It's funny, I was in the airport this week. I'll talk more about that in a bit. I was in the Calgary airport, and there's a Tim Hortons, and I thought, you know what? I want chili, and I'm in the lineup, and I'm about to order chili, and the last second, I think, I'm getting on a plane with a bowl full of chili in me? That's a bad idea, so I switched to something else. But anyhow, imagine the world's best chili. The world's best chili. It's won the awards, or if you like chili, I like chili, but if you, the world's best chili is in this pot. And then along comes somebody sinister and throws a whole bunch of rancid beans into the chili. And then you come along to this mixed up pot and you, you take a bite. And, and as soon as the, the, the sauce of the chili hits your tongue, you're going, oh, well, this person was an amazing cook. Wow, this is very good. And then you bite into one of those rancid beans and you go, oh, and you spit it out. That's a little bit about our, like our earth today. It's still amazing. There's beautiful. It, the heavens still declare the glories of God, but, the, but there's been a corrupting influence, the corrupting influence of sin that's ruining, it's ruining the recipe. And so we have great highs and wonderful experiences in this life, and we say, wow, life is beautiful. And then we have other moments when we say, life is hard. Life is pain. Life is suffering and disappointment. And we recognize Somebody's ruined the recipe. What God made very good, sin has infected. So then it talks about the second pot, which is heaven. The heaven now. Like what happens when somebody who's trusting in Jesus and, and giving their life to, to Jesus, and they go and they die today. Where, you know, where, where are they now? 
And what are they experiencing now? So we talked about that a little bit last week. And this recipe, there's nothing bad in this recipe. It's all healthy. It's all good. It's all wonderful. It's better by far than the half good, half bad, spoiled recipe over here. But not every ingredient of what God wants to give us in the future is present in the present heaven. There are some things that are yet to come. So you could say the heaven is better by far than earth. And if you had to choose, like the, the writers of the Bible, they would say, for sure, I'd choose to be with Christ in heaven than to be here on this earth. But God's got even more in store for us in the new heaven and the new earth. So I'm just recapping a little bit in case you missed last week. And today I want to talk about the resurrection and, and resurrection in the Bible. And so there's three things. I'm going to give you a broad strokes now, and then I'm going to dig in a little deeper in 1 Corinthians 15. The first one, I, I've got, I found this little Fisher-Price guy. He's a king, which is awesome. Because the front part of the resurrection train is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. And as we'll see in our text today, that links up with the resurrection of Jesus' followers. And then, we won't spend much time on this this week at all, but I want you to know this. And I did read Romans 8 to you a couple weeks ago, so you might have heard it there. The resurrection of, hum- of those who are trusting in Christ, his followers, is tied to the resurrection of something rather large, and that's the resurrection of God's creation. Remember the spoiled pot? God intends uh, to undo the spoiling in the pot. And so the resurrection of Jesus, is the, it's the power that, that pulls this whole train. Then we have, out of that comes the resurrection. It linked to that is there our resurrection. And linked to our resurrection is the resurrection of heaven and earth, the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, again, you'll see this connection here in Romans 8 really well. Uh, but what I'm talking about today is in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's sort of the, it's the connection between here and here. The resurrection of Jesus and, and our resurrection as well. All right, before we jump into 1 Corinthians 15, um, this week I flew to Calgary. I told you that. And um, on my way there, I took my uh, Heaven book by Randy Alcorn. I wonder if we have an image of that. Um, anyhow, yeah, Randy Alcorn. Uh, great book. I'm really enjoying this book. It's 400 pages long, so it's a big book, but it is awesome. And I thought, I'm going to take this on the plane. You know, I put all my baggage up, up above, and then I thought, I'm going to hold my book out here, and I'm going to read it, and maybe someone will see the title and ask me a question. That was sort of my hope. And so I, I had even prayed about it. Lord, give me an opportunity to speak to somebody. And um, so I'm sitting there in, my pl- in this little plane flying to Calgary, and I've got my book, you know, you know. Can you see the title? Does anyone want to ask me questions? <laughs> Anyhow, it didn't work at all. Nobody said, hey, that's an interesting book. So I was like, oh, well, that didn't work. So I'm halfway through the flight or maybe a little bit past halfway. And I'm like, well, hmm, I wonder if there's something else that I should. I'm still enjoying reading the book, but I'm thinking, oh, I wanted to talk to somebody. And then I look across the aisle and there's a woman there and she's reading a book. And so I thought, I wonder what she's reading. And so I looked over at what she's reading and maybe I can pull up the book for you here. She's reading this book. Just in case you can't read it, it says, I'm glad my mom died. So now I figured I have a chance to talk to somebody. So I said, excuse me, I, I, I couldn't help but noticing that you're reading a book with a very provocative title. 
I mean, that, that catches your attention. That title is really, you know, it's catchy. Um, can you tell me what it's about? And so she said, oh, yeah, it's this uh, lady. She grew up and uh, had really bad experiences in a relationship with her mom, abusive relationship. And um, so this book, she's writing to sort of chronicle her journey and also... Um, you know, even the writing of the book is a bit of a healing process for her, you know, um, it's, it's therapy, I guess, in a way, to talk through her life. And I was, I was like, wow, you know, that's fascinating. And, I, you know, I talked a little bit more about the book, just interested in what it was all about. And, uh, and then I, I said to her, and, and, you know, I'm thinking, this is the spoiled pot in action, Right? Like, isn't it wonderful that God gives, gave us moms and dads, but sometimes those relationships aren't great? So you could say the design of having a mom and a dad, that's very good. But what about when our human relationships, because we're all sinners and we all sin against each other, when, when that sinning against each other gets really, really bad, it's not great. And that's what the author was writing about, how not great it was, her relationship with her mom. So anyhow, then I, I, I thought, well, I, maybe I can segue from that to this. So I just said, I said, the reason I, I thought it was quite fascinating that you're reading a book with that title is because I'm reading a book with this title. And I showed her my book about heaven. And I said, um, and it's interesting, here's someone who had a terrible relationship with their mom, as much as to say that they're glad their mom is dead. And I said, I'm reading this book. And I said, one of the reasons, it's obviously not my only reason, but I said, one of the reasons I'm reading this is because six years ago, my dad died. And um, my dad trusted in God that he would take him to heaven. And so now I'm reading this book to find out what my dad is up to now. Because I miss my dad. And then she's like, oh, well, what, you know, what's the book like? And where can you get that? And stuff like that. So I, we had a conversation. Uh, it's not like this preachers that, you know, it always ends and someone gives their lives to Christ on the plane. And actually the whole section has a revival. You know those stories. Anyhow. <laughs> I haven't had one of those yet. If I do, you'll be the first to know. But I thought it was interesting. We're living in a broken world, and, uh, and sin is real. And, bro- and the brokenness in our world, in creation, and in our physical bodies, and in our relationships, and in all sorts of areas, is very, very real. And so we're so glad for the hope of heaven First week I was talking about how the hope of heaven is meant to be an anchoring hope in your life. It's meant to um, allow you to persevere. In fact, the, the greater you uh, fix your eyes on an eternity, on what God has in store for you, the more likely you are to persevere in this earth. That's what we talked about in that very first week. And, you know, I thought about something that, here, let me just introduce this. I thought about something that, as Christians, we might say when it comes to um, this whole study of heaven. Um, and I've heard, I've said this myself. So if you've said this, don't feel bad. I've, I said this myself. It's sort of like, we can't really conceive of heaven. Have you ever said that? I've said that. We can't really conceive of heaven. And it's partly true and partly false. So the truth about it is we can't fully conceive everything about heaven. Right? We can't. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, 19 and 13 says, you know, no mind can conceive. So you go, okay, well then what's the point? Why are we doing a series about this where we're fixing our eyes on heaven when nobody can conceive of these things? But it's interesting that that, that, um, 
that passage of Scripture ends with, after it says, we can't conceive on our own the realities of heaven, it says, but God has revealed these things by his Spirit. So it's like, we can't conceive of it on our own, but God, in his goodness, has revealed truths about heaven that we can know and we can fix our eyes on. We can fix our imagination. When I say eyes, it's our imagination. It's our, it's our focus can be on these things. And so it's not that we can't conceive at all. We can conceive. In fact, God has revealed much about heaven that we can know. And I think we sort of, we, we, on, on, we, we anchor ourselves on what the Scripture says about heaven. And then, like anything that you think about a lot, we do imagine but it's not imagination that's unconnected or unanchored to Scripture. So it's a little bit of a recap. I'm going to jump uh, forward here. I love that Dave pointed out how awesome last week's service was with three baptisms. And uh, I had someone come out. I chatted with somebody after the service who had also given their life to the Lord last service. And I was just like, there's rejoicing in heaven, right? In the presence of the angels, I believe there is my dad, and throngs and throngs and throngs of others who rejoiced last Sunday. I don't know if, isn't that amazing to think about? Right? That the, the center court, where all the action is, of the unfolding of the drama of God's redemptive history, is still on the earth. And so I don't think that people who are in heaven are unaware of what's happening here. I think they are the ones who are rejoicing with the angels, like it says in, first, in Luke 15.10. Let me read it to you. In that same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who's, who repents. When anyone comes to God for forgiveness and, for, and to asking him to lead their life, there's, there's a party in heaven. All right. One more thing in review, and then I'll jump in. I did share last week... Uh, and out of 2 Corinthians 5, 4 to 8, uh, Paul had three preferences in order. His first preference is that he wouldn't die, but he would live long enough so that he would be around when Jesus came back. That was his first preference, that he would go from this body to the body yet to come, the resurrected body. Then, if that wasn't what was going to happen for him, he had a second preference. His second preference would be that instead of being here on the earth, if he ever had to choose, he would choose to be in heaven with God, that that was better by far. So that was, that was his second choice. And then the third choice. By the way, these are all good choices. Not, these aren't like, oh, man, that's terrible, that's terrible. These are all good choices. The third one was to live by faith and not by sight and to serve now so that many people's joy and faith in Jesus could be increased now here on the earth. So three good choices. But his first one, number one choice, was to go from what he called this tent of a body to an eternal dwelling. This thing that's temporary to a body that's eternal. And uh, that's what 1 Corinthians, a lot of 1 Corinthians talks about the resurrection, and it talks about our bodies, the body yet to come. So when I th said to the lady on the airplane, um, I'm reading this book so I can find out what my dad is up to. Um, I'm, I'm reading that book to understand what his reality is like. But there's a reality my dad does not, has not experienced yet that he will experience at about the same time that I experience it. 
So I and he and all that are followers of Jesus will experience together the resurrection from the dead when Jesus comes again. All right, so there's some broad strokes. Let's get to 1 Corinthians 15. You still on page 933? Oh, did your finger get tired? I'm sorry. Here we go. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. Here's another one of these Paul ranking moments. What's of first importance, Paul? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So, what's first importance? Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised. Now, he says a few things. He says, according to the Scripture, because the Old Testament talked about these realities in advance. Lots of prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, particularly, Isaiah's got a lot about Jesus. And, but there's lots of places in the Bible that, that sort of shadow or prefigure or prophesy about Jesus who's yet to come. And so he's saying, these things happen to, according to the Scripture. Jesus fulfilled all the prophetic requirements to be the Messiah, to be the one who could come and be that sacrificial lamb on our behalf. So according to the scriptures, so that's one of the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus, is that he fulfilled all the, all the prophecies in the Old Testament, which are, would be impossible to fulfill unless you were the one. And then he appeared to more than 500 of brothers and sisters. So his appearances post-resurrection are another proof that Paul's laying out there. And he names names. That's quite interesting, naming names, right? Because these, many of these people are still alive. So when he says, yeah, he appeared to this guy, it's like, it's, he's, he's like saying, fact check me. Check what I'm saying. Go talk to these people. Have a conversation with them. And you're going to find out uh, that they'll testify that Jesus did rise from the dead. So he said for Keep going. For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So he didn't deserve to be God's salvation. Actually, none of us do. Sinners who have... Um, offended the eternal God with our, our sin and our disregard to who he is, don't deserve eternal life, but it's offered to us as a free gift. And it's, a, and it's possible for us to have that even in the first place because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. I'll keep going. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? This is what some in Paul's circle, and I would say who are believers, were saying at the time. There's no resurrection from the dead. Now, I know we might not talk, I would say I haven't, through a number of years as a pastor, talked a lot about the resurrection from the dead, yet to come. And back then, people were saying, oh, I don't think that's a thing. Maybe, maybe you even feel like, I don't think that's a thing. But I want to show you how important it is and how linked it is 
to Christ's resurrection. If there's no resurrection from the dead in the future for us, that's this train, if there's no resurrection of the dead for us, then, uh, or if there's no resurrection for the dead, period, then not even Christ has been raised. So not only is this car missing, which means this car is missing, but this car would be missing. Um, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's a pretty strong statement. Christianity is useless if Christ is not raised from the dead. A lot of people say, well, I I like Jesus for his moral teachings and stuff like that. Actually, that's awesome. His moral teachings are awesome. They're actually quite transformative and super hard. You need the Holy Spirit's ability to do things like love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to bless those who curse you. Those things are, have you tried them? Have you tried them? They're hard. I found them exceedingly hard. They're the kind of things that make me cry out to God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need you to empower me to do these things. They're impossible in my natural ability. I need to do something supernatural in me in order for me to do these things. So, if Christ has not been raised, their preaching is useless and so is your faith. It's not just about obeying the moral teachings of Jesus. It's that Jesus didn't come just to teach some good things. He came to be our Savior. And he's not our Savior if he did not rise from the dead, if he didn't conquer death. And so our teaching about Jesus, our promotion of who Jesus is, it would be useless if he didn't rise from the dead. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he, he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So you can't stand before God with confidence. You would stand before God in great fear without what, if Christ has not been raised. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Falling asleep in Christ, falling asleep is sort of a euphemism, but talking more about the body state after we die. I don't believe that people are asleep in heaven right now. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't think that's the teaching of Scripture. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. Say, well, it gives you hope. It's okay. It's okay that my friend's religious. It gives them hope. It helps them. Yeah, but if it's just not true, then it's just not true. And it's a false hope. And so that's why we believe in the resurrection. We believe it's, it's real. It's a real anchoring hope in our lives. But Christ has, in, if Christ, has indeed been raised from the, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. There's the good news. The first fruits of those who'd fallen asleep. First fruits is like a farming term. It's like the first of your crop starts to produce grapes, and you're like, whew, I'm going to get a crop, Right? You might not have a, you know, you just see the little gray, grapes starting to form. I have cherry trees in my backyard. These sour cherries from the U of S, they're quite good, actually, when they finally get to their, past their, when they get the most sugary, they're edible. Before that, you wouldn't want to touch them. They're like, they'll kill you. But after that point, they're really good. But I'm always encouraged. I go out there, you know, did the bees do their job? Did I get a few cherries? And I go and look at all the cherries. Oh, good. I see the first fruits. I'm going to have cherries this year. I have two cherry trees. One of them's got a bunch of cherries starting to form. Yes, the first fruits are there. So I'm confident I'm going to be eating cherries later on. 
The other one, there's nothing on it. It's pretty new. So I'm like, okay, no cherries this year, maybe next year, right? The first fruit is Jesus. The first fruit is his resurrection. That's the first fruit. That means that the things that come after can happen. There's going to be a harvest. For since death came through a man, the resurrection from the dead also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Okay, yeah, so he's sort of giving a little bit of a lineup of things to happen. When he comes, Jesus' second coming, those who belong to him will, will be with him. Then the end will come. So it's sort of like it's, we're rolling up the scroll of history and, and, and ending one era and beginning a, a brand new one. And when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Those are things that oppose God. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So Jesus is going to win this battle. He's going he's to be victorious. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he's put everything under his feet, including death. Now when it says everything, he's been put under him, it is clear that this does not include himself, or God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him and put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Uh, one commentator said it's like, uh, you have a king, and then you have a prince. The prince goes out and wins a great battle and, and, and gains some territory. He comes back to the king, and he presents the territory to the king. And he said, in some scenarios, the king then in turn says, you've won a great victory, you've done what I wanted you to do, and now I give you that land to govern. So that was an image that one scholar said might be thought of in this, that here's Jesus, won this great victory, presents that to the Father, and in turn, then those things are under his authority. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those who do who are baptized for the dead? And this is sort of one of the more perplexing passages. I'm not going to give too much explanation because I'm still a little fuzzy out of myself. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? It must have been a custom that was happening back then. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If, if, if people aren't going to rise from the dead, why am I endangering myself, Paul says, which he was, right? Here was a guy who was whipped 39 times. He was stoned to death. There's one passage there where it appears that he does die, or at least he's as close to death as you could possibly be. He's in, he's, he experiences shipwrecks and persecutions and all sorts of different things. Uh, this, he says, I face death every day. Yes, as surely as I boast about you, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, I don't think he actually fought like wild beasts. I think this is a reference um, for people who opposed him. Okay? If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with, more no, with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's what no hope sounds like. Let's just get plastered and give it up. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. So the resurrection of Jesus has a, has a connection point to our battle against sin in our lives. 1 Corinthians 6. We'll jump there for just a little bit. You don't have to jump there in your Bible, but you can if you want. I'm just going to read a little bit out of there and come back to 15 again. It's talking about, can I do whatever I want? 
I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, so he's, he's having an argument here with people who have made these claims. You say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Hear that? This body, God's just going to destroy it. It doesn't even matter what I do to my body. God will destroy them both. And so now Paul is going to correct that theology. He's going to correct that theology. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The body is meant for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord, Jesus, from the dead, and he will raise us also. Here's this connection point here. Jesus is raised from the dead, and he will bring that same resurrection power to raise us from the dead as well. Do you not know that the bodies, your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall then I take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So, the teaching about the resurrection of the body has implications for how we live now. She so says, it doesn't matter what I do with this body. I'm going to heaven someday. This body will be discarded. And it doesn't matter what I did with it, right? My spirit will go to God. I'll be a disembodied spirit. And that's how I'll be for all eternity. Except for that's not what Revelation 21 and what Revelation 22 teach. And many parts of the Bible. And, and what the apostles were teaching. They're saying that this body is not disposable like a paper cup. It's not just something you throw away. This is the argument he's making here. He's making this argument that this body is going to be resurrected. And some of you are like, what? What? This one? I don't want it back. I want a better one. Well, I got good news for you. There is an upgrade. There's a serious upgrade. But I kind of think from everything I've read, I think it still will be some semblance of these bodies, right? I don't think in heaven I'm going to look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. As nice as that might be, that would be an upgrade for sure. But would you recognize me? Are we going to go there and we're all going to look like totally different people? And we're like, I, I can't find my wife anywhere. I, she's a redhead. Anyone seen a redhead? You know, I think there's some continuity in the body, and I think I can, we can look at that a little bit more yet. Yeah. But here's the argument. Why don't I sin with my body here now, however I want? Because the body's just going to be destroyed, right? And Paul's coming back, no, no, no. God's going to raise Jesus. He's going to raise our bodies. So this has actually had a lot of influence through the years on whether or not Christians got cremated. I remember my very first pastor, he had he'd written an article. So I was... This is back in the 90s. He'd written an article for the newspaper against cremation. Oh, my goodness. He never got so much flack in his life. Uh, now you're really nervous about what I'm going to say. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Calm down. So this is what I believe. A lot of Christians have said, I'm not going to have create my body because I do believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so I want my body to be intact so it can be raised again. You know what? If that's why you made a decision not to cremate a loved one, I honor that 100%. I honor that 
That's amazing that that's how you're thinking. And you're believing for the resurrection of the dead. That's awesome. And the resurrection of the body. That's really good. At the same time, if you are in a horrific, explosive car accident, God is going to have to stitch back a lot of pieces, isn't he? Right? Some people die in such ways that you're like, how are those pieces ever coming back together? I think any resurrection is going to be a miracle. So I don't think if, you, if a body is cremated that it can stop God from doing what he wants to do with that body. Right? So I don't, if, you, if you suddenly are going, uh-oh, we cremated grandma or grandpa. Sleep good tonight. Don't worry. Okay? God is the one who's going to do the miracle. He's going to resurrect the body. And he'll bring it all back together. And that body will be changed. It will be different. But I think there's going to be continuity between our, the current body and the body yet to come. And that's why you shouldn't sin with this body. That's why you shouldn't sin sexually with this body. Because this body belongs to God. And it's not just a disposable element. We have, I don't have time to talk about this, but boy, a guy named Plato introduced the idea into Western society, but it sunk, it sort of seeped into the church as well. That our spirits, that's the good part, and our body, it's a prison, it's terrible, it's a thing to be discarded and to be gotten rid of. And so now, some crazy thinking has come out of that, not good thinking in many ways, but we are, a, we are embodied people. We are physical, we are spiritual. When Adam was created, he was a body that God breathed his life into, he breathed his spirit into. He was a body before he was a spirit. The body's not disposable. The body is not nothing. The body's not just, the body's not evil as Plato would have taught, and the spirit is good. We will be embodied again. Now, I don't, we, I talked about last week about how it's, a, to me, it's sort of vague on what kind of physical, uh, how we live in the, in the, in the heaven that's now. So my dad, what's his experience right now? I think it's more physical because I read lots of physical things in the description of heaven. So I think there is physical things. But he's not in the resurrected body he will yet have. The best is yet to come for my dad. And I will experience that with him at the same time, as will all believers. Our future existence is very earthly, very physical, very tangible. And that's, that's in here in 1 Corinthians 15. So we flee from sexual immorality. We, we live differently now because of the body that's yet to come. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've been, become so ineffective in this world. We haven't thought of the things to come and haven't allowed them to come back and affect us here and now. I'm looking at my time and realize I can't conquer 1 Corinthians 15 today. <laughs> Let me grab highlights really quickly. Verse 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Verse 38, God gives it a body as he has determined to each. It's like a seed. In verse 40, he said, the splendor of the heavenly body is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly body is of another. The body, the resurrected body, has more splendor. There's more, it's greater compared to this earthly body. That's good news for us. 
Verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, true. It is raised imperishable. That's awesome. It is sown in dishonor. Let's be honest, we've all done things in these bodies that aren't honorable at certain points. But there's no sin stain on our future bodies. They're raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Have you been feeling that? I've been feeling it more and more every year. Just that sense of, can't do what I used to do. Can't do it as long. That vitality's not there as much. And how easy is it to injure myself? It's ridiculous now. I was indestructible for many decades. Totally bulletproof. (sighs) Now I just like tweaked something and I'm like, can't sleep. This is terrible. But good news, it's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. You know those moments when you feel most alive? I love it when guys get together. Girls might do this too, but I know guys get together and we talk about our greatest, if we're into sports, we talk about our greatest moment in sporting achievement. Yeah, I remember that one game I scored three goals. Or I remember that one time where I just took out that big guy on the other team. Or I remember that, whatever. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the glory of our bodies. We were able to run and jump and and hit and whatever we needed to do in that moment. And we felt alive. Our body will be, it's it's in weakness now, but it's raised in power. Fully alive. Some of us are like, oh man, I'd love to get back to where I was before. You know what? It's not just getting back to where you were before. This is a whole new experience of the power and the glory of experiencing what a physical body can do. It's, here's the last one. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, some people have taken that, I think, the wrong way to say, oh, it's physical now, and then we'll just be disembodied spirits in heaven, and that's not what this is teaching. It's a spiritual body. means it's what fuels it. What's, what's the source? What's the thing that's, what's the engine inside? And it's the Spirit of God that's the source. So sometimes we live in the natural, so to speak. It's just like I just, I just live like God doesn't exist, and I just live like there's no purpose in life, and I just live to satisfy the cravings of my stomach or my, my brain. But when God gets into, the, into your life, he elevates that. And you start living for his purposes. You start caring about his design for your life. He's the life-giving spirit, as it says in verse 45, that animates our bodies. And here's verse 49. It says, so just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, like, just like we're like our ancestor, Adam, Eve, whatever, we, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Now verse 51, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. It's talking about the body. Well, it's more than that. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed and the with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the thing that, is, that as I study more about the new body, the new heaven, the new earth, it's the scope of Christ's victory that stuns me. So let me present one way of thinking of it that I don't think is true. Sin entered the world. You know, we know the Adam and Eve story, the serpent in the garden. Sin entered into our world, corrupted the world, and it's broken. And so then the answer is that God's going to take us out of this world, and he's going to take us to heaven, and uh, this world will be destroyed, and these bodies will be destroyed, but we escaped. It sort of sounds like a retreat. Like the enemy took a whole bunch of territory, and we don't get it back, but we get away. And sometimes, I think it's sort of like just half of the story. It's just half of the story. I think the scope of Christ's victory is that he said, he says this in Revelation, and says it in many other places, and his followers said that, he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. The scope of his victory is he's going to take our bodies infected with sin and he's going to renew them, resurrect them, make them new. So that you say, wow, Satan seems like he won here. No, he didn't. God is going to win in our bodies. You take the world you take our globe, you take even the universe, you take everything that's fallen, that's broken, that has evidence that it's been affected. And God's going to make it new. That isn't territory the enemy won. That is territory that God is reclaiming. That's the scope of his victory. He's making all things new. And so I know I've thought this for many years. I thought, man, yeah, if I could just escape from sin and if I could just uh, get to the point where I'm not sinning anymore and, I'm, I'm, you know, we get away and, you know, this world can burn and, and, you know, bodies will be discarded. And no, there's not an inch of creation that Jesus doesn't say, this is mine. And he stands to reclaim it all. That's the message of the resurrection of the dead. That's the message of the, the new body, the new heaven, and the new earth. And that's the scope of his victory that he intends to win. And he's already won the victory on the cross. In fact, we, we get that victory by association with Jesus. We are victorious. We already are living in a level of that victory, though not all of its full unfolding has come yet. We are more than conquerors because of Christ Jesus. And he is going to rule and have victory over everything. Last verse. This is where I wanted to spend most of my time. We'll see. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here's the thing. I referenced this the first week. Sometimes we think, oh, man, you, if you think about heaven too much, you'll become so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I think you can relax. And you don't have anything to worry about in that department. On the contrary, many of us are so earthly minded, we're not heavenly good or earthly good. 
C.S. Lewis said it really well. He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot, who set on foot, or set out on foot to convert the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. We need a generation of heavenly-minded people who see human beings and the earth itself not simply as they are, but as they will be. This will change you. This will change you. The more I I think about, uh, there's another C.S. Lewis quote, I don't have it in my notes, but basically says, if you look at the average everyday person you see, and if you see them with eternity's eyes, it will change how you engage with them. I mean, he, he goes on in that one to say, they will become, even though they will become so glorious, so amazing, what God's got in store for them is a total, is a transformation so significant that you would be tempted to worship them. Or they would become so decayed, so destroyed that you could have nothing but pity for them. I remember I had a conversation not that long ago with just somebody, and I remember um, just talking to them about, you know, trusting in Jesus and stuff like that, and I remember it just started to come out of me. I see you as an eternal being. That's how I see you. You are an eternal being. I'm talking to an eternal being right now who God's design is for them, for, for you to Experience his glory, to live in his power, to rule and reign with him. We'll get to more of that in the weeks to come. He's got incredible things in store for you. You're an eternal being. I'm not just fooling around with people who are just disposable paper cups that are going to disappear. I'm talking to eternal beings. God has so much in store for us. Hmm. I got a video. I want to show you this video. I got a video. This is just, I came upon this video and was just like, I stumbled upon it, really. I'm, I do not ever follow women's collegiate softball. I'm into sports, but I'm not that far into sports. So I've never followed it in my life. So I stumbled upon this video. This is the Oklahoma University, the, the Sooners, whatever. It's their, their women's softball team. People are saying this year's team is the best women's collegiate softball team that has ever existed. Why they say that? Well, at the time of the video that was made, they had just gone on a 51-game streak when uh, they won every game, 51 in a row. Every team, every college women's softball team was gunning for them. No one could defeat them. And so they're being interviewed. And uh, this weekend, they just won the championship. They extended their streak basically undefeated to the end. So they are like just this unstoppable softball team. But what I want you to catch in this video 
is it's just a normal interview because they celebrate like crazy. They just love when they win. They're so joyful. And then the, interview, the reporter is asking them about how they have so much joy in playing baseball. And I want you to hear what they say. with ESPN for, for the players. I know you talk about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but Joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, that's really the only, the only answer to that, because there's no other way that softball can bring you that, um, because of how much failure comes in it, and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I, I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't, have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled, and I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if, it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously, we've worked our butts off to be here, and we want to win, but... It's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ, and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys mm -hmm. see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really, like, fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think... Once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And, I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home. And I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And, yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home. And um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So, Patty, uh, you've got to keep your eye on the... You know, did you think that heaven was just a hope for old people? <laughs> or a hope for people whose life has gone terribly bad? It's a perspective bringer. It's a perspective bringer. The anchoring hope of heaven is meant to affect you at every age, stage of life. Even when you're on top of everything. Even when you're winning everywhere. I just love how they said, you know what? Softball can't bring us that joy. But Jesus can. Would you stand with me this morning?
Let me read you that last verse one more time. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, that's who you guys are. You're my dear brothers and sisters. Stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know. This has been my prayer. Lord, help us know. Help this not just be intellectual ascent. Help us to go deep, deep, deep into us so we know, we're confident that what God has in store for us is a sure thing. It's there for us. That's one thing I saw in my dad. He talked about heaven like it was a sure thing. All the time, whenever he talked about, whenever he mentioned heaven. Just like, well, of course, maybe could die any time and then I would be in heaven and there's never any equivocation. And, you know, some people do have deathbed doubts and different things like that. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying, you know, pointing a figure. The, the scripture says, be merciful to those who doubt. But my prayer has been that you and I would grow in this anchoring of what heaven is. And that it would affect how we live now. It would cause us to stand firm. It would cause us to, to not be moved let nothing move you. It would cause us to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. I mean, the, the message about heaven, it adds urgency. If people are going to be so glorious, you'd be tempted to worship them, or so broken that you could only have pity for them. There's an urgency to that. We must give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And here's the great promise. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If you're serving God and you say, I'm not seeing fruit or I'm not seeing results, or I'm just, you know what? It's not in vain. It's not in vain to give yourself to the Lord. Like Paul, who just totally gave himself 100% again and again and again, no matter what the cost. That's never going to be in vain. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word and thank you for the clarity it gives us about our life now and the life uh, that those who have already passed on and trusting in you are experiencing now. And then the full uh, experience of what there is yet to come. And Lord, we thank you that your word gives us truth that we can anchor ourselves to and that can fuel our imagination, fuel our wonder, fuel our worship. Lord, we want, and, and fuel our service, fuel the way that we give ourselves to other people in this world. If you've already established the end is good, then we're just living in this space to expand people's joy and faith in you. So we, we ask that you would make uh, this hope that anchor. Lord, I'm just thinking of different people right now. I think there's people maybe here that... Um, They've been thinking about death more as they age. They've been thinking about heaven more as they age. Lord, I pray that there would just be a sureness in them uh, about the reality of heaven. And I thank you that the scriptures are written so that we can know that we are yours. If we come to you, if we repent, if we say, I, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, that you won't turn us away but you will accept us as your very own sons and daughters.
So I pray for an assurance of salvation for those who might be feeling like death is closer and, are, and they're worried about that. I pray that they would, could know and have that confidence to face death. Lord, I pray for those who are experiencing um, pain and suffering in this life and, it doesn't, and the dark clouds doesn't seem to part and it doesn't seem like the sunshine is coming or a brighter day is ahead. Lord, I pray that you give them the incredible hope that this breath of a life will be replaced with an eternity with you. That pain may be here in the night, but joy is going to come in the morning. Lord, I pray you give us that assurance that you are, you are not, you've not abandoned us when we suffer. You've not abandoned us in our pain. But in that, you are there with us. And you have incredible things in store. Lord, I pray for people who are on top of the world and they feel bulletproof and they're winning and winning and winning. I pray you'd show them that that cannot be the source of their hope. That cannot be where they put their trust. That could be taken away in a heartbeat. But the hope of heaven is forever. So I pray for great perspective. And Lord, let us see people as eternal beings as you made them. Lord, we just ask for these things. Anchor that hope. Anchor that hope in us today. Lord, I pray for those who need to stand firm. Those who need to... Let nothing move them because they're in a, a hard press right now. Again, draw them back to the fact that you have something better for them yet and that we're drawing on the strength of that reality to live for you in today. Yeah. I pray you bless each one who's here this morning. You meet them where they are, Lord, where they are in their walk with you, whether they're just starting out fresh or whether they've been walking with you for decades. I pray you'd meet them exactly where they are. In your name. And everybody said? Amen. Well, let's worship our Lord.